This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Avraham Stern, better known as Yair, the warrior poet who ignited the struggle for freedom that led to the liberation of our country from foreign rule. 80 years ago, on the 25th of Shvat, he was shot dead while handcuffed by British detectives in Tel Aviv. Yair wasn't just a revolutionary, he was the revolution. The revolution trapped and embodied within a man whose poetic language of freedom was incomprehensible to the majority of his people. It was actually a fatal error for the British to murder Yair, because in doing so, they released the spirit of revolution, which then permeated the Jewish people until even many of Yair's political opponents were taking up arms to free our land from the British. So this episode, which is going to focus on Sternism as a Jewish liberation tendency, is dedicated Le'ilui Nishmat Avraham ben Mordechai, that his soul should be elevated. And if any listeners are interested in dedicating an episode of the Next Stage podcast in honor or memory of a loved one or for their speedy recovery from illness, you can do so by contacting us by going to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar. In general, it's important to remind listeners that if you like what we do here at the Vision Movement and at Vision Magazine, you can support our work by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and hitting the donate button on the menu bar up top. Please keep in mind that we are 100% listener funded and we don't want that to change. So your support is important and very much appreciated. And if you're currently unable to contribute to our work financially, Doing something as simple as sharing episodes of this podcast with your friends or leaving a positive review can be incredibly helpful in enabling us to expand our reach. So now getting into this episode on Sternism as an ideological tendency, I have joining me on the program, the vision organizer, Aryeh Shapiro. Aryeh, thanks for joining me. Shalom, Rav Yehuda. Good to be here. And uh, let's get to it. Uh, Sternism as an ideological tendency, as a unique Jewish liberation ideology. So I think it's really important to start by Sternism, both in the context of a long string of Jewish liberation movement Mm -hmm. over the almost 2,000 years of exile, uh, but also in its time, in its era in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. a time of great political upheaval across the world and liberatory revolutionary movements across the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I think both of those things are important points. And, you know, I think we should explore how the Sternists viewed themselves very much as another link in the chain of several Jewish liberation movements that had come before and failed. But I think it, it's important to maybe at least take a quick look and Yair's political development. You know, a lot of people aren't aware that as a young man in what was sometimes Russia, sometimes Poland, uh, around the time of World War One and the Russian Revolution, you know, Yair, uh, at that time, Avraham, Avraham Stern, was uh, a member of a Marxist-Leninist youth movement. And I'm sure a lot of his ability to apply revolutionary theory to Jewish liberation issues or to Jewish issues in general came from his experiences in that youth movement. Um, he made Aliyah, 
Uh, he definitely saw himself as part of a people in need of liberation, uh, which certainly makes a lot of sense in the early 20th century in that part of the world. So he, he might have been a Zionist for a minute, but he very quickly became disillusioned from Zionist politics. Uh, and he was very critical of both what he saw as the Zionist left and the Zionist right. Uh, and he he kind of left politics. He, he left political activity and just focused on his studies, uh, went to Hebrew University. And for some time, he would even later spend a semester uh, abroad in Italy. But uh, while at Hebrew U, uh, he meets David Raziel, who had been a student of Rav Kook, uh, Rav Avram Yitzchak Akoin Kook, even sometimes a teacher at Merkaz Arav. And Raziel uh, essentially turns the ear on to, I guess, what for lack of a better, better term, we can say Rav Kook's vision for Jewish history, um, the goals of the Jewish people, the purpose of the Jewish people in history. And that brings your ear back. That causes Stern to become, you know, politically active once more. Uh, he sees the revisionist Zionist movement, uh, which Raziel was already involved in, as the best vehicle to try to achieve his goals. But he, he really had a cynical attitude towards revisionist Zionism and towards Zev Jabotinsky specifically. I don't think he ever considered himself a student of Jabotinsky. He was always very critical. And, and he used the revisionist movement. Uh, you know, he became a member of the high command of the Etzel, the Irgun Svailumi. Um, he would go travel to places like Poland and recruit, basically poach from Betar, from the revisionist youth movement, and try to create his own clandestine underground behind Jabotinsky's back. And ultimately, when Jabotinsky becomes the official supreme commander of the Etzel, uh, Yeir splits away and creates his own movement, which becomes known as the Lechi, the Lochem Echerut Israel, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. So I think even that development is important to understand how, how Avram Stern, you know, the, the process he went through from, you know, being in an ML youth movement at the time of the revolution to splitting away from the Etzel and uh, launching a war of liberation against British rule in Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the back and forth, maybe we can call it in his political trajectory, um, from being centered in, in ML thought, in the heart of Soviet uprisings, into his political progression, and maybe moved from politics into his academia, but even there, uh, both at Hebrew U and especially in Italy, uh, he was engaged with ideas of liberation movement and renewal and renaissance, and especially at Hebrew U, which very much within the auspices of Zionism, but was also supposed to be the center for national intellectual revival. And Merkaz Arav, obviously, his connection with Raziel and learning the Torah of Rav Kook, all centered on the national revival. These threads of revival are always central in his life, even if it's coming from very, very different directions over the course of his life. Right. And I find it interesting that, you know, even though he was clearly less learned than Raziel when it came to Torah, meaning he learned Torah Tarov Kuk from Raziel, essentially. They were very good friends and even roommates for some time 
uh, e even together with Rav uh, Avram Shapiro Zatzal, meaning the former uh, chief rabbi of Israel and Rosh Hashiv of Merkaz Aravid. At one point, both Raziel and, and Stern lived together with uh, Rav Shapiro, according to some research my wife had done for her PhD. And Stern clearly didn't have the uh, depth of understanding of our Torah that Raziel did, but he was able to uh, more successfully implement a lot of its objectives practically uh, in his political activity in ways Raziel could not. And he came to political conclusions that Raziel did not. And I think that what, what's interesting, what we really see there, and I think this is maybe how we should understand Sternism, is a combination of revolutionary theory with Torah Torah of Kuk. Uh, meaning, e even if it was a surface-level understanding of Torah Torah of Kuk, meaning he wasn't a, Yair was not a yeshiva student, but he was someone who was able to take those values, those goals, those aspirations, those ideals, and put his ML training as a youth to work in service of that vision. And I think that interestingly reflects even some of what, what Rav Kuk writes about academia, that while Torah is ob obviously the, the center, the heart, the life force of Jewish learning and Jewish growth, there's also a very important place for understanding the world and its science and its political theory. And it's that it actually allows, especially someone who's based already in a background of Torah, to really expand their consciousness towards humanity and their understanding of the world at large outside of bubble we could call it and I think this combination that you mentioned the synthesis between Tarata of Cook and revolutionary theory is a really really beautiful example of exactly that of someone who can take their basis in in Torah in understanding of what it means for Am Yisrael to re-enter the world stage on a national level and apply to that understanding and to that dream a modern advanced political theory uh, really builds this beautiful movement that becomes Sternism. So let, let me ask you a question. I think a lot of people would hear what you just said and ask the question, well, how is that different from Torah Umada? How is that different from the Rav Soloveitchik approach or the Yeshiva University approach to unifying what we can call Torah with academia? What's the difference there? I think the biggest difference is, is where we put the emphasis and what the ultimate aims are. Mm -hmm. If we're learning Torah in order to keep ourselves as individuals kosher, while we are striving towards a good career with a good degree, ultimately the, the essence there is the good career and the good degree. And we as individuals are trying to keep ourselves kosher. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Rav Kook, the the klal, the general collective, uh, both on the Jewish level and on the universal level, are so central to the Torah that it's impossible for either the understanding of the broader world or the Torah study to be restricted to the individual, to the private lifestyle. And it has to be a broader integrated understanding of the world. Right, that it's not just trying to combine two isms and water down both. Absolutely. It's an understanding that both of them are manifestations, are facets of the ultimate 
divine truth and specifically reveal parts of that expression in the world uh, that the other doesn't. And Dove could use those strengths, those unique features, and build a broader, a fuller understanding of what God wants from us in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. So may- maybe we should get into the question of how, you know, Sternism differs from Zionism, because I think a lot of people superficially uh, categorize, and, and people across the Israeli political spectrum, and even many uh, scholars in academia, historians, you know, Yeir and the Lehi and Sternism more broadly, has not really been the subject of any serious investigation on an academic level. The few attempts to study Sternism are really unimpressive, especially in the English language. And a lot of people just reduce it to a branch of revisionist Zionism, you know, or another form of Zionism. And I think that's problematic for several reasons. First of all, being uh, that I think Sternism is an active rejection of Zionism. I, I would say the biggest difference is that Zionism related to the Jewish people as an object with a problem whereas Sternism related to the Jewish people as a subject with desires. Meaning for the Zionists, it was all about solving a problem. It was all about solving anti-Semitism or solving homelessness or solving assimilation. And Zionism was the solution to that. And I think for the Lehi, for Yair and for his followers, it was really more about achieving the ancient aspirations of the Jewish people, the the things that we have wanted for thousands of years, the things that we had continued to say in our tefillot uh, three times a day, um, the things that were really important to our collective soul throughout our entire history. And in many cases, we see, we see clear examples of important figures in the Lehi um, make this distinction and say, we are not Zionist. Um, one example is Nathan Yellen Moore, the political, the political leader of Lehi after Stern's assassination. Um, he writes a letter to Eldad where he says, it, you know, it's very important that we know we are not a Zionist movement. We are an indigenous people's liberation movement and nothing to do with Zionism. And when the two Eliaos, Eliao Betsuri and Eliao Hakim, uh, were on trial in Cairo for the assassination of Lord Moyne, the uh, British Minister of State for the Semitic region. Um, they also, uh, during their trial in Cairo, they make this distinction saying, we are not Zionists. Like Zionism from the perspective of the Sternists was basically this colonial project cooperating with the British Empire, you know, very philanthropic in nature. Whereas, no, that's not us. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're about. We are about liberating our people, liberating our country from foreign rule, in this case, British rule. And I think to a certain extent, they just looked at Zionism as as a bit of a joke. Right. I think especially to to the sternest, Zionism was the British Jewish Liberia. Hmm. Uh, Not quite colonial project to get rid of a minority that you didn't want to deal with and some kind of semi-independence in a country that would end up being an effective colony. Right. Whereas, uh, and I think a better way, as we've been saying, a better way of understanding Sternism would be the application 
of Marx's Leninist principles to the story and struggles of the Jewish people as we've understood those things for thousands of years. Absolutely. And and it was successful, meaning it really was the, we, we can say the successful application of revolutionary theory to Jewish liberation. I remember, you know, years ago, I used to work for uh, Aryeh Eldad, the son of Israel Eldad, when he was a Knesset member. And he once mentioned to me that the success of Lehi was really, and he attributed this primarily actually to Nathaniel and Moore. He, he told me that the success of Lehi was really its political analysis, its ability to really calculate how each bullet fired and each explosion and each ideological pamphlet and wall proclamation and statement in a courtroom and even execution, meaning even, you know, the way that the, some of the freedom fighters were executed, you know, each one of those things was really calculated with the understanding of how the Jewish community would respond, how it would impact the Jewish community, how it would impact different political groups within the Jewish community, how it would impact the British, how it would impact the Soviets who were watching, how it would impact the Arab world, how it would impact uh, the media, meaning that it really was a very um, sophisticated analysis driving a lot of the activities. And in truth, the Lehi was very successful in a forcing the British to collectively punish the entire Jewish community of Palestine. Uh, and also uh, the Lehi was very successful in dragging much of Palestine's Jewish community into conflict with the British, uh, primarily the Etzel. Remember that the Lehi began fighting the British in 1939, and the Etzel only joined the fight in 1944, when World War II was essentially finished. And and even the Palmach and the Haganah, you know, for brief periods of time, were involved in some uh, light form of anti-British activity, uh, not really armed struggle per se, and, and certainly not killing British representatives or, or soldiers, but, you know, sabotaging British installations, things of that nature. Organized disobedience. Right. But it was really Lehi that dragged the Jewish community into that conflict and forced the British regime to collectively punish and therefore alienate uh, the Jewish community, thus exacerbating the contradictions. Yeah, I think specifically their ability to target and... Uh, be exacting with their actions, with their speeches, with their publications, with their attacks even, are especially impressive looking now, so far back uh, from where we stand now, and comparing to the the way the Israeli government and their real struggles with messaging, with imaging, with Hasbara today. So many lessons have been, been lost and forgotten that we even see a need to thin doctor and make sure the world sees us the way we want them to see us uh, without any forethought into the policies and the proclamations beforehand. It's, mm. it's all so reactionary today, the politics, without any of this, this careful, thoughtful planning. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we can maybe attribute that to the fact that Sternism didn't really grow and develop in Israeli society once we achieved independence, meaning it split. It split between those who are primarily focused on Jewish liberation and the aspirations of our ancestors 
and those who are more focused on revolutionary theory and fighting for the oppressed and uh, challenging imperialism. You know, those forces within Lehi really split with the former creating a, a magazine, essentially, uh, like a kind of an intellectual core, a sulam, and the latter creating a political party, uh, neither of which had much impact on Israeli society, meaning that, you know, together when these forces were united, they were extremely successful in ultimately forcing the British to leave Palestine. But once these forces were separated, uh, they kind of just drifted to the uh, two extremes of the Israeli political spectrum. So you had one, you had one group, Yellen Moore's group, which kind of um, just drifted to the far left, and and Eldad, who you know drifted to the far right. Um, of course, taking a very superficial look at our political spectrum, but uh, but really, they had very little impact. Whereas, you know, labor Zionism, revisionist Zionism, the, these things really developed and had roots in Israeli political culture, and you see that even down to some of the parties today. And even Yitzhak Shamir, you know, Yitzhak Shamir is uh, the operational leader of Lehi, who ultimately became the Prime Minister of Israel with the Likud Party, which is a revisionist Zionist party. But I would I would argue that he himself might never have actually become a revisionist. I think Shamir, uh, as Yair did at one point, Shamir really saw the Likud Party or the revisionist movement, the revisionist political party Likud as a vehicle to advance Jewish liberation. And But even to his death, you know, when he was asked, you know, by journalists or others, who he thought were really the great figures of history, the great figures of the 20th century, he would most often either say Lenin or Mao. And I think for Shamir, you know, he understood that these were the people who literally wrote the book on revolution, who literally wrote the book on changing society and taking power. And, you know, Shamir had also spent time even when he was, uh, when the British had deported him, they had him locked up with uh, a lieutenant of Ho Chi Minh, where he you know, was exposed to a lot of ideas where, you know, he, he really understood that uh, all of this was an important tool, you know, that revolutionary theory could be an important tool in advancing Jewish liberation and, and achieving um, the things that we've been trying to achieve for thousands of years, which like speaks to your point earlier about you know, Lehi seeing itself as really the successor to many of the Jewish liberation movements that came and failed before it. Absolutely. And I think Eldad himself laments in his memoir, The First Tides, that maybe their greatest mistake or greatest regret was relinquishing the powers so, so fully to the Haganah, to Ben-Gurion, and ultimately to, to the labor Zionist. As we've discussed already, the, the reason the British left the driving force behind the the revolt and behind us receiving our independence was ultimately the Lehi. And had Eldad and Shamir and Yellen Moore taken a harder stance, insisted a little bit more on receiving their due as the state came together, as the army came together, it's very possible that as a nation, as a state, we would be light years ahead of where we are today. Right. I think that at a certain point, I mean, they had been fighting for Jewish political independence. Uh, they saw that uh, a Jewish state was being established 
And I think that caused some people to believe that their role had been finished, that they had done their job, they had achieved their goals. And uh, I, I don't think that was a view of Yair. I think Yair saw a place for this revolutionary movement post-independence and very broad strokes. And that might even lead us into a conversation about how Sternism developed, you know, during, you know, let's say, that decade from 1939 to 1948. Um, because there were some, at, at least on the surface, there seemed to be some very uh, dramatic political changes. You know, we can say that, uh, you know, in, in the beginning, when uh, World War II broke out, Yair Stern actually reached out to the Germans and tried to strike a deal where Germany would deport its Jews to Palestine and the Jewish underground would fight the British which Yair anyway was doing and, you know, hoped to intensify. So he felt that, you know, the Germans didn't want their Jews. He wanted the Jews, meaning it was a goal in his mind to bring all the Jews home, what we call Kibbutz Galiot, right? The ingathering of the exiles. He saw that the Jews were not only uh, unwanted and unsafe in Europe, but they just simply didn't belong there. And he saw this as um, a, a convergence of interests even though he understood that the Nazis were our enemies in the sense, or our haters rather, he made a distinction between the, the Tsurer and the Oyev. He said the, the Nazis are the Tsurer, they're our persecutor, but the British are the Oyev because the British are occupying our homeland and the British are in the way of our goals. That's part of, I think, the difference between being an object with a problem and a subject with desires, meaning the Zionists who, who saw the Jewish people as objects couldn't get over this idea of trying to strike a deal with the Nazis who hate us, but Yair, who was totally focused on the Jewish people's aspiration and mission, was willing to exploit any situation and said, if the Nazis don't want Jews in Europe, and if the Nazis are fighting Britain, let's make a deal where we will fight Britain and we will take those Jews home. And what's interesting, you know, in terms of the Zionist opposition to this was that Herzl had essentially proposed the same thing after the Kishinev pogrom. He went to meet with Plevier, who was the uh, interior minister of Tsarist Russia at the time, who had orchestrated this pogrom, which this pogrom, the Kishinev pogrom, was considered the worst catastrophe that had befallen the Jewish people in quite some time, you know, up until the Holocaust. And he proposed the same deal. He said, you don't want Jews in Russia. I want the Jews in Palestine let's make a deal. Let's figure out a way to get the Jews from Russia to Palestine. So Yair was really just taking a page out of Herzl's playbook at that moment. I mean, obviously this was before the Vansi conference. You know, Yair was, it should be noted, Yair was killed a month after the Vansi conference, meaning when the final solution to the Jewish problem was decided upon. So, you know, this attempt to strike a deal with Germany was really taking place at a time when the Germans were not yet liquidating the Jews, but actually trying to find a country to send the Jews to. But he he really was serious. He said that to enlist in the British army uh, without a Jewish war aim in World War II was idolatry. He said the British are fighting the Nazis, but they're not fighting the Nazi Jew hatred. They're fighting the Nazi war machine. They're not fighting against Hitler's anti-Semitism, you know, they, they were fighting a conflict between British interests and German interests. And for the Jews to be involved, you know, the Jews shouldn't give their young men 
to England for free, if we are going to enlist in the British Army, according to Yair, we should be able to obtain either a guarantee for independence afterwards, or the rescue of Jews, um, or, or that the shores of Palestine be open to Jewish refugees fleeing Europe, um, meaning there needs to be a Jewish war aim. There needs to be a Jewish condition for fighting. It can't just be the Nazis hate us, the British are fighting them. Even though the British are our enemy, we're going to help them fight the Nazis. Uh, so that was very advanced, maybe even too advanced for his time. I think a lot of Jews were, were very put off and might still be put off by that. But that ultimately shifted, meaning by the end, by, by 1948, the Lehi had already developed much more of a pro-Soviet orientation. I mean, officially neutrality in the Cold War, but it was very clear that they leaned more towards the Soviet Union than to the United States. Absolutely. And I think that that flexibility, that not being tied down to the hopes of British British promises, and especially after 30 years after World War One and uh, the sacrifices that countless Jewish soldiers made for the British army then and the decades of failing to see any fruits from those sacrifices following, I think, a very healthily skeptical approach to any alliances. Mm-hmm. Whether it be the British or the Nazis or the Soviets, um, at least in hindsight, really the only logical approach. Mm-hmm. Any alliance, any ties to a global power that wasn't making clear and active commitments to advancing our aims couldn't and shouldn't be trusted. Right. Another area, by the way, where the um, where you see a lot of development in sternest thinking is the Arab question. You know, when Yair writes his uh, his um, 18 principles of Renaissance, he, you know, he puts towards the end that uh, we can solve our conflicts with any Arabs through an exchange of populations, meaning that we will take the Jews from all of the Arab countries and the Arabs in our land, meaning the Palestinian population, would go to those Arab countries. Uh, that was something that was in the Ikre Tria. And, um, you know, I, I think that was simply just a question of methodology. That was what people were doing at that time. That's kind of um, what was happening, uh, where there were these kind of demographic conflicts, whether it's India, Pakistan, whether it's uh, Greece and Cyprus, whether it's, you know, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia. This is kind of what would have been going on. But you see, as Sternism developed, I mean, Yair himself, definitely took the position that there's no point in targeting Arabs for attack, we need to be targeting the British. I mean, that was one of his disagreements with the Etzel. The Etzel saw itself very much in a conflict with the Palestinians, whereas Lehi or Christier said, no, the enemy is the British, we need to be fighting the British, and perhaps even saw Palestinians as victims of the British as well. But uh, certainly after Yair's assassination, the political development of Lehi was such that A, they had Arab members, especially from Abu Ghosh. There were Palestinian fighters in Lehi. And also, you know, they had this aspiration for Semitic unity, this idea of unifying the entire Semitic region in kind of one anti-imperialist front. And even when the two Eliaos, who we spoke about earlier, when they went to Cairo to assassinate Lord Moyne, of the reason that they were captured ultimately was that uh, they refused, they had orders to refuse, but they didn't seem conflicted by those orders. 
they had orders not to fire upon any Egyptians, to make sure they do not kill any Egyptians, because from the perspective of Lehi, the Egyptians are our natural allies. They're also victims of British colonialism, and uh, we should do everything in our power to try and unite with them. And so ultimately, the two Eliyahu's were captured because they were pursued by a by an Egyptian policeman. They were on bicycles. He was on a motorcycle. You know, he shot at them. They refused to return fire. And ultimately, uh, one of them was injured and both were caught. And, uh, and even during their trial, um, one thing a lot of people don't know is that the Muslim Brotherhood at the University of Cairo actually organized demonstrations for their freedom. That's how impressive they were. That's how inspirational they were to the youth of Egypt, that you had the Muslim Brotherhood demonstrating in the streets for the freedom of the two Eliyahu's. And I think that maybe the, the last example that I, could, that I can give for the development of uh, the sternest position on the Arab question was really in 1948, and maybe in hindsight we could see this as an error, the Lehi did not believe there would be an Arab front. Meaning once they succeeded in forcing the British to leave, they were convinced that we could avoid a conflict with the Palestinians and with our Arab neighbors. And they even published leaflets in Arabic that they distributed throughout the country, basically telling the Palestinians, don't fight us. We have no beef with you. You know, we, we're fighting the British and they're leaving. Don't let them convince you to fight us, because if you do fight us, we are going to attack you with the same level of violence that we attack them. But ultimately, we want unity with you. We want to build this land together with you. Do not fall into their trap of attacking your Jewish neighbors. And that, of course, wasn't very effective. Um, there might have been some Palestinians who were impressed by these leaflets and decided not to participate in violent attacks against Jews. But there were also Palestinians who definitely did engage in violence against Jews. And that's ultimately the way history went, meaning this ultimately escalated into a conflict, not just between us and the Palestinians, but between the Jewish community of Palestine, what became the state of Israel, and many of our neighbors, many of our neighboring states, which were also, by the way, armed, led and funded by British officers, it should be noted, especially Jordan and Egypt, both Egypt and Transjordan, I think it's important to note that these are the two armies that succeeded in conquering territory from us. You know, Egypt took the Gaza region and, and Jordan, you know, Samaria and Judea and most of Jerusalem. Um, they were armed, led and trained by British officers in that war. Absolutely. And I think we even see that the, the French led and armed and trained troops in Lebanon and in Syria were involved in the war, but had no interest in expanding beyond the, the borders that the French had already cut out for them. Uh, even decades later in 67 and 73, uh, one of the greatest pitfalls of the Arab armies was their insistence on not giving up any troops for more than they thought was going to be their share of the pie. Uh, so it's very clear that the British trained troops and armies, which saw themselves inheriting British mandatory Palestine, we're going to be far more motivated than French troops who would ultimately be, be told by their French commanders to return the land to the British at the end of the day. So, so I guess the question that uh, we should really end off with is how do we see Sternism today? Like where is this ideological tendency relevant to the Jewish people, to the state of Israel, uh, to Jewish liberation? You know, I personally think it's as a Jewish liberation tendency 
that relates to the Jewish people as a subject with desires, it probably has a lot more relevance today uh, than Zionism does because, you know, Zionism was much more limited in scope and limited in its aspirations and what it set out to do. And, you know, a lot of that has been done. So where do we see Sternism today? So I think first and foremost, the, the 18 points that you mentioned earlier, the aims of our revolution, uh, with a couple minor adjustments here and there due to the historic realities of the last almost 80 years. But with some minor tweaks, I think they present a really compelling vision for where Am Yisrael and Medinat Yisrael could be headed and where we should be setting our sights for, for the coming years. So do you think there are any hard positions uh, in terms of some of the hot button issues challenging Israeli society today? Would you say that sternism would take a clear position? Could we know um, if we're defining sternism as the application of revolutionary theory to the goal of Jewish liberation and not just Jewish liberation, but even fulfilling the mission of our people in history? Uh, which, you know, as we saw in last week's parsha, is Mamlechet Kohanim Vegoy Kadosh, like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, meaning we're meant to create this um, civilization that will inspire the rest of humanity and bring all of humankind to the awareness that we're all ultimately united at the source. How can we apply that today? How can we apply revolutionary theory to, uh, to Jewish liberation goals? Meaning because we have a state today, because, you know, the Jewish people have a state and we have a government and we have an army, you know, clearly armed struggle is not the tactic of choice today. Meaning I think the sternists in the late 30s and 1940s opted for armed struggle against British rule because it was British rule and that was the most effective tactic at their disposal. And it worked. I think that, you know, maybe part of the reason why they had trouble finding their place in the state of Israel was because they became so associated with that tactic of armed struggle. And even when people think of Lehi today, they don't really think of Lehi's ideology. They think of its methodology. They associate Lehi with political violence and armed struggle. They don't associate Lehi with the ideas of sternism or the political development of sternism, meaning people aren't thinking of it as an ideological tendency that was actually more sophisticated than the other Jewish liberation tendencies at that time and was able to achieve a lot through a tool that according to its own analysis, they had decided to use, meaning armed struggle was only a tool. The goal was Jewish liberation. The goal was advancing the redemption process. And at that moment, in that chapter of Jewish history, they saw armed struggle as the tactic of choice, as the most effective tactic to use in advancing the Gula process, in advancing the redemption process. But I, I think it's clear, and this is probably one of the reasons that Lehi fell apart after the establishment of the state, that once you have Jewish political independence, the tactics need to change because any armed struggle not sanctioned by the state institutions would by definition be undermining Jewish independence here. Meaning if the state of Israel is the tool with which the Jewish people collectively fulfill the mitzvah of possessing Eretz Israel, then 
you know, vigilante violence by definition weakens that tool, undermines that tool, and therefore would undermine Jewish independence in Eretz Israel. Absolutely. So I think the question really becomes, what is the, the goal of that independence? Um, we've had a state for almost 80 years now, and the real question is, what are we, what are we doing it with it? Where is it headed? And I think this earnest vision of a really continued societal struggle not just military, but intellectual, political, economic, continued ongoing struggle until we've reached the ultimate aim is is a really helpful lens for ultimately approaching and advancing Israeli society. Right. So I, I think, you know, just like tendencies develop even past the time of their founders, like, you know, a lot of what we call Maoism today it was really only crystallized in the 1980s following Mao's death. Uh, I, I think the same could be said for Sternism, that you know the application of Sternism today is up to a younger generation of Jewish revolutionaries. And I think it's very clear uh, that the principles of Sternism would demand Israeli independence from the United States, that Israel should be an independent country and not uh, a vassal of any foreign power. It's not like the British. It's not like the British who actually had boots on the ground here. Um, but there is a lot of American control of Israeli politics, you know, Israeli policies, you know, Israeli leaders and, and even military freedom of operation. Right. And 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 a lot of the a lot of the moves Israel makes, a lot of the positions Israel takes, uh, a lot of the decisions our our leaders make are definitely influenced by another nation's interests. And, uh, but just like imperialism works different, meaning neo-imperialism is different from British colonialism, uh, I think the way to fight against it is also different. Like, I don't think the way to free Israel from US dominance is through armed struggle, you know, especially for the reasons I already pointed out in terms of undermining you know, the state of Israel as a tool through which the Jewish people collectively possess Eretz Israel, uh, but also because neo-imperialism needs to be fought differently. No, I absolutely think that the, the even the other tools that the Lechi used, the political flyering and campaigning and speaking and education campaigns uh, were hugely central to their activity as well. Uh, the Lechi wouldn't have been as effective as it was if each of their, each of their members was not incredibly well trained, not just with a gun, but also with a pen and with their words. Um, right, and and different, you know, different phases of a revolution require different tools. You, you can't be a hammer that walks around seeing a nail everywhere. You, you have to understand that, uh, you know, we have to understand that there are times when this method of struggle is appropriate and times when that method of struggle is appropriate. So even though, you know, I would fully support armed struggle against the British or the Romans or the Greeks when they're occupying our country, uh, today, I, I think there are definitely much more appropriate and much more effective methods of struggle for trying to free the state of Israel from, from foreign control. But, you know, another feature of uh, Sternism is really helping the nation to understand itself. A spiritual or cultural or identity revival that I think needs to be focused on as well. This idea of understanding who we are, maybe even, and this might kind of have overlap with where the Lehi 
kind of ended up in terms of the Arab question is this indigenizing into the region. And actually, one of the main criticisms that a lot of sternists in the 1950s had for the state of Israel is that it had allied itself with Western colonial powers against indigenous peoples like the French in Algeria. Well, you know, a lot of the sternists in the 1950s were active in setting up the Israeli committee for a, for a free Algeria to side with the Algerian fighters against French colonial rule. And that was a position that was clearly out of step with the Mapai government at the time, the, the labor Zionist government at the time. So I think that even this idea, this desire to ally ourselves, not with some big superpower, uh, but rather with the other native peoples of the region, with the oppressed peoples of the world, to be in solidarity with indigenous peoples, e even though the Jewish people have succeeded in achieving things that many indigenous peoples have not, uh, we should still stand in solidarity with them and remember that we should be on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressors of the world. Absolutely. I think if we can develop and grow uh, a positive relationship with our surrounding countries, not one based on American pressure and selling arms to us and everyone around us, like our pieces with Jordan and Egypt and the Abraham Accords, but a real common shared interest in growing and developing and advancing the interests of this region for ourselves and for our neighbors for a better life is, is really essential to that movement. Right. Well, it's certainly a lot to think about, and I hope that uh, listeners do. The 25th of Shvat is, of course, a great day to reflect on the legacy, and not just legacy and contributions of action, but also contributions of thought of Yair, Avraham Stern, Avraham Ben Mordechai, and his followers, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. Uh, Aryeh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rabbi Huda. I think this is a great discussion. And, and Mazal Tov, you're Hashem, getting married in a couple of weeks. So uh, I want to wish you a Mazal Tov officially in the air. And Bezrat Hashem will celebrate soon. Listeners, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 69.